0: You know, I've been in New York celebrating my 40 years, and I think I had 12 food critics at the New York Times that went through while I've been cooking. And I'm still standing, and I'm still waiting to see who's next. So they're all doing their job. I'm doing my job. I believe that I I never made a restaurant for the critic, but I made sure that the critic could really l- find something that is good For the community, for the city, for 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 the level of work we try to do as well, and for the mentorship. And that's not meant an opinion are equal. It's 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 just like art and architecture, music, and everything else. It's subjective.
1: Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is the Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly twenty years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. A quick programming note, this is the last episode of Season 3, but we'll be back in June with more episodes, so stay up to date by signing up your email at thegrandtourist.net. In the world of food and fine dining, my guest today is a household name, Daniel Belude. Born in France and raised on his family farm near Lyon, he would rise to the top of his craft at an early age. After cutting his teeth working for some of the top names in Europe, he got a choice position cooking for diplomats in Washington, D.C., and soon moved on to New York. Later on, in the mid-80s, a young Baloud would take the reins at the legendary restaurant Le Cirque, and he quickly became a central figure in the Manhattan dining scene. As a New York Times review said, If a generalization can be made about the changes on this awesomely varied menu, it is that, on the whole, the approach is lighter, more rustic Provencal, then polished Parisian. It was that new, approachable point of view on French cuisine, rooted in his youth on the family farm, which connected with diners. And the rest is food history. Baloud opened his famous Michelin star restaurant, Danielle on the Upper East Side in the 1990s. And today, he runs a food empire from the Bahamas to Singapore. His latest is Le Pavillon, a restaurant in a midtown skyscraper with soaring ceilings, where customers are surrounded by greenery, and dine on a menu with a heavy emphasis on vegetables and seafood. It was named after a famed French eatery that opened at the 1939 World's Fair and became a classic until its closure in the early 70s. Marking his 40 years as a New Yorker, I spoke with a reflective Baloud from his headquarters in New York about his early life, what made him the chef he is today, and just what makes a great burger. But I wanted to start from the beginning and... You grew up in a farm near Lyon, uh, and, and your family had a small cafe attached to it. Can you tell me a little bit about your earliest memory of your life on living on a farm?
0: <laughs> well, uh, it was a busy farm. It was a very busy farm. Both my parents, my grandmother, my uncle, my cousin, they were all working with my father. And uh, the composition of the farm was then because we weren't living in the plains of Mm Lyon. We were more living in the hills of Lyon. So we could not do just grain or focused on one particular things and, you know, have a bunch of tractors and just do grains and wheat and corns and things like that. So we had to kind of a multitude of application crops we had at the farm. So of course, crops was very important because we had live animals. We had cows. We had about 20 cows and then we had about 40 or 50 goats. Uh, we had three pigs, which we raised and killed uh, every year for our own goods and having a supply of charcuterie for the year and supply of ham and charcuterie and sausage. And uh, you can imagine the saucisson and all that confit. And the pigs, they were fed every day with the buttermilk, the buttermilk coming from the cheese we were making from the goat milk. And so that was uh, quite uh, nutritious. And, well, you know, it, it, what was amazing is that, you know, we talk about waste and we talk about zeroing down to a cycle that keeps things uh, that that keep being recycled with the purpose of doing more things and and I think the farm was the typical example of that, from the uh buttermilk to the manure to everything else. <laughs> everything gets used
1: <laughs> usually you know life on a farm is pretty is pretty tough, but do you have good memories of of your childhood there like was it a nice childhood?
0: yeah, very much there was so there was so much uh I take my son there sometime and I explain him what I used to do on that farm and show him the old equipment, what we used to do with it and uh, explain him, you know, how to catch birds or to, <laughs> how to catch animals. And
1: <laughs> Is the farm, the same farm still in your family?
0: Yeah. 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 That, that's where my parents live still. And my brother and sister are all around. And, and uh, that's where I have my house there in France. I have my uh, own House next to my parents' home and that 's where cafe bouuru was also we had a cafe in that farm, but then it closed in the early sixties so i didn 't really know the cafe too well but the heirloom of the family and the and and the business that uh, uh we had this cafe so in New York when I had the opportunity, I created cafe bou here
1: and so you you went uh you sort of left home at the age of what was it, 14, to, to, to go and work. Uh, what, was that, what was that like? Helping my grandmother in the kitchen
0: definitely gave me the bug that cooking was a big interest, a passion, but I didn't know much other than my grandmother's cooking, which was delicious. And, and she will always make stew and, and roast and, and, uh, and we will eat the strangest thing sometime like for example saturday was the market day so we will kill maybe 20 25 chicken uh for the for the market that was pre-ordered by our customer there and you know you 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 kill them you 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 take you save the blood you you pluck them and you got them and you get them ready basically for the Mm guests and uh, so that's a lot of work to do on Thursday and Friday to prepare all that but often friday night we will eat this sanghet. it's called sunget and it's basically a blood a chicken blood omelet where we uh, will, will 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 whip the chicken blood with a little bit of vinegar and salt and pepper and a little bit of milk and then we will pour that into a large pan and make a a Tortilla of blood, of chicken blood and then saute like a, a flat omelette, and then cut that in wedge like a cake. <laughs> and, and, and that was, <laughs> that was Friday night's, you know, dinner. What did it taste like? It tastes like uh, blood sausage a bit, but, okay. you know, good irons. So, you know, that we consciously, we knew what good nutrition was. And yeah. how important it was to have a balanced nutrition between calf liver and blood sausage and and uh, all kind of things that we always kept. And we were making the cheese. We were doing all that. And the and uh, our table was always at lunch with the roast and with vegetables and all that. Breakfast was with the pork belly, eggs, pork belly and cheese. Of course, my parents had early breakfast at uh you know four thirty five in the morning they had coffee mm. and a little tartine and then at seven thirty there was breakfast like uh, breakfast of champion and then <laughs> at noon we always started with a salad and the salad was coming from the garden and the vi- the dressing was unmistakably the garlic dressing our own garlic so with the mustard and vinegar and oil and, uh, so the, and, and the, and the salad will vary with the season from winter salads to, uh, like chicory's f- family to the, the spring salad and to the field salad. The one we were going to go on the field, like the mash, the mash salad, we will have to go to the field and pick it up or the dandelion foraging. Foraging was a very big thing as well beside the garden, uh, mm. for mushroom, for salad, for greens, for, uh, for nuts, for all that. Of course, after the salad, there was the roast, and there was always at least two vegetables with that. And then we'll have cheese, and then we'll have either a fruit or a dessert or or something simply made, uh, a little uh, sample dessert. And then at night, we will have a soup. So at lunch, the salad to start, at night, the soup. Always the soup. It doesn't matter if it's winter, summer. And, you know, in Lyon, we didn't care much. Uh, cold soup was not always the the things. Even in the summer, we'll eat a hot soup. And the hot soup was often either made with uh, the vegetable of the garden or some leftover stock we had or leftover vegetable we had. or uh, There was always a way to transform some either trimmings or, or, or other things and uh, super delicious and that is something that always stay with me and at night we will eat a little lighter in a way there could be you know all kind of pasta or things like that or
1: grains and when you left home uh, to go be an apprentice you must have had these skills already not the skill but the knowledge of ingredient
0: and the knowledge of 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 taste and flavor that you know home cooking basically my parents tried to put me in a cooking school at 14 when i decided that i wanted to be a chef and i stay only three weeks at the school three four weeks maximum and i quit and i told my parents that the food was much worse than home and because maybe my taste was developed already to know that bad food is bad food you know what i mean (laughs) and the teacher were not good cooks (laughs) <laughs> and and I was. What did you
1: do after you quit?
0: Well, that was the dilemma, and uh, we had this very wealthy lady. She was not wealthy, but she lived a life and was burning all her money. So she was a contessa from Italy uh, okay. that married a, a noble in Italy, Contessa di Volpi, and uh, she was this beautiful. She must have been beautiful young. She was not very young anymore, but she was still driving a Mustang comfortable. So you're talking like mm-hmm. the late sixties and she's, she was smoking two pack of cigarettes, drinking two bottle of whiskey a day with her friends. Uh, and, uh, she had race horse and gambling on that. And she was going to the casino all the time, but she was going mm-hmm. to the best restaurant of the city. She knew every chef in the sweet star. Two star and one star of the entire region of Lyon and Lyon itself. And when, uh, one day she will come to home to pick up cheese or eggs or chickens and that because she was living maybe less than a mile away, half a mile away from us. And, uh, and when she was alone, she never wanted to sleep alone in her house. So I will go as a kid and sleep there. In case, you know, something happened, I don't know, maybe to keep the dog quiet. <laughs> and so, uh, she was kind of, I was a little protege. Uh, she, she always loved me. She bought me my first watch when I was 12 years old. She, she was always taking care of me and taking care of the family. And when my parents see her and say, you know, we don't know what to do with Danielle. Because uh, he don't want to go to school anymore. He don't like the school where he's cooking. And he wants to be a chef, but we don't know what to do with him. And so at the beginning, she suggests, oh, maybe he wants to be a jockey because she had a lot of horses at the uh, racetrack. Maybe he wants to be a jockey. And so for five minutes, you know, coming from the farm, taking care of the horse again. uh, That wasn't my thing. (laughs) The animals, I gave it enough. (laughs) So... I, uh, and I knew that I had to get up at four, four, thirty or five in the morning and clean up the horse for a couple of years, you know, to be that palfronnier. Uh, and, um, so, and then she said, well, if you want to be a cook, uh, and a chef, I will knock at every three star and two star restaurant in Lyon and ask them if they want an apprentice, a young apprentice. And she went around, and she went to the top three stars and the two stars, and one of them said, "Yes, I will take one. Under your recommendation, I will take the kid." And so, at fourteen, I went to Lyon and started my apprenticeship.
1: And what was it like as a young, uh, young apprentice? It was in a, very in a Michelin strange. star restaurant. Yes, I mean. because
0: I, it was a two-star Michelin, and it was definitely w- the best restaurant in Lyon because. The whole society of Lyon was sitting there. It was a destination restaurant, but it was also a true Lyon restaurant. Mm-hmm. And in that restaurant, we were do also doing catering for the town hall, for the city hall, uh, but also for the state hall. And also we were doing the fairs, uh, the Leon, uh, the big trade fair, uh, and many other things g- going to private clients as well. And um, I don't know. It was very strange at the beginning because I enter in this restaurant and I'm a very young kid. My parents bring me they present uh we meet the owner, so the owner you know look at you up and down, ask you a few questions, and then come and follow me and then goodbye to my parents and now I'm gonna see you every week uh, and the rest of the week I'm gonna be living by myself in Lyon, so I was living in an uncle house and then a cousin. But, you know, I was Uh kind of living by myself. I was doing whatever I wanted in the afternoon during the break and all that. The apprentice is almost the responsibility of the owner to take a a sort of a fatherhood uh, uh, responsibility to make sure that they take care of that kid. And uh, the owner was fantastic.
1: Were you paid at all?
0: Yeah. Well, I was paid a dollar a month. Okay. My first salary was a dollar a month. Because I compared with five francs. So five francs at the time was barely a dollar. Sure. And then uh, gradually I went up to maybe after three years, maybe I made $15 a month. Wow. (laughs) So that was really (laughs) not worth anything.
1: My parents helped me, of course. Were you a good apprentice at first? Did you show up on time and, and, you know, had a clean apron and the whole thing? Yeah, but I had the,
0: the biggest problem was not to be a good apprentice. It was to be able to get along with the guy, the apprentice of the second year and the third year, uh, and the chef de partie who was just crushing on you, crushing on you all the time because wow. you had the youngest. You got to get beat up in order to learn. And and not beat up, but, you know, you, they put pressure on you. They hazed you. Yeah, very much. Yeah. And wow. But so, you know, I had my challenge, but I wasn't going to give up, neither cry, Neither be upset. I just fight, you know, <laughs> and uh, and and. But I was uh, very lucky that um, I got a chance to meet some of the greatest chefs in France and Lyon, and it was in a time where there was a huge transformation in a, a generation, a, ger- a ger- generational transformation of chefs. There was a new generation coming in, but also the formation of a new, this new generation was forming a new club and of these young chefs that were ambitious to transform French cuisine into nouvelle cuisine. And uh, so it was amazing to be able to witness the ebullition around uh, what was happening in French cooking and and also the media marketing and the, and and the attention chef was having at the time there uh through the media and through the campaign of uh this uh you know fraternity among chef and and also they were starting to make cookbooks a lot and they were starting to and and um and and they really define uh, a whole new chapter in french cuisine that you know we knew in the past from escoffier and carem and all that and and then when paul bocuse started to lead the pack of this new generation of chefs uh that became uh, really a generation of uh of of chefs led by paul bocuse that really transformed the landscape of dining in france at that time and internationally as well as well they they, that's really when they started to go international and come to cook in america with uh like uh, you know all the french chef was starting to cook at uh, robert mondavi in california or in tokyo at uh, the school of suji in tokyo or in, in, in Australia or in South America, in, in Rio de Janeiro, in, uh, in Caracas, in New York, uh, they were starting to create outpost and, and consulting, uh, opportunity there to start to make their cooking. And, and I think that was, uh, for me, it was eye opening. And, you know, I served my, also in Lyon, we were doing the state hall and I served my first president in France at the age of 15. And, you know, at the time we, for security reason, we all had to have clearance. And part of that clearance was they were giving you a cart with, you know, the blue, white, red and the stamp and all that with your name on it that you could get into the, into the uh, state hall to, to do the party. And, you know, at 15, you're like, whoa. <laughs>
1: Before we return to Chef Danielle, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home. From its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel, or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. The shelving and closet systems by Polyform use timeless qualities of design to achieve dazzling results. One such system is the Lexington by Jean-Marie Massoud, and it's a standout for its modularity and flexibility. In this system, mid-century style meets the 21st century. With a strong architectural signature, the Lexington can create bookshelves, room dividers, walk-in closets, drawers, writing desks, and all with optional integrated LED lighting. Either connected to the wall or ceiling, the Lexington blurs the lines between private and public spaces for a more contemporary way of living, and it comes in a sophisticated array of options like oak and walnut. For more information about the Lexington and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. So, after you started your career in Europe, uh, you rose quickly through the ranks. You were learning from legends like uh, Roger Verge. How did you first find your way to the United States?
0: I was offered to go to Washington and be a private chef. And they were going to pay me the trip, the apartment, give me a
1: car. Was it for... uh, A politician?
0: Yeah, for the uh, European economic community. They had a delegation in D.C., so it was a diplomatic uh, uh, position. Uh, Mm -hmm. The head of the delegation was French, and he wanted to have a a young French chef. He wanted to make sure his table in D.C. was the best table to be at. And, (laughs) and, And they proposed me to go there, and I felt like, well, why not? So they were not entertaining too much, but... Even the wife of the ambassador was calling the media, inviting media to come, something embassy had never done that before. And they, she was trying to promote me and promote the fact that Airtable was the best table in D.C. <laughs> I uh, worked there for two years. And then after the family went back to Europe, and that's when I decided to stay in America. And I tried to be in a restaurant in D.C., but I didn't like it. Uh, so I uh, wanted to come to New York, and I asked one of the chefs in D.C., Jean-Louis Paladin at the time, the best chef in D.C., I say, you know, I want to go in New York, and he said, you know, I have this opportunity because they are redoing the Westbury Hotel, and it's the same management and the Watergate in D.C., Watergate mm-hmm. Hotel, and the Westbury Hotel in New York is the same management, Trostas Forte, and they are looking mm-hmm. for a chef, Go and check it out and present yourself. So he sent me there and I did an interview and they liked me very much. But, uh, they also liked a chef from France that was sent by Roger Verger, my old mentor, which I was not talking to at that moment. And I didn't know he was sending also another chef. So bottom line, we decided to work together, the, the old chef, uh, the chef from Verger plus myself and take over that. Because they were giving me the Plaza Atene in New York, the opening and the restaurant there within two years after. So, for me, it was a perfect opportunity to come to New York and see if that city will be what I like to. You know, I always dreamed to come to New York. So, I I had the chance to come many times while I was in DC. And I think that gave me, uh, you know. Uh, What year was that when you moved to New York? uh,
1: November 82. I mean, the 80s, to to be running, you know, a major restaurant in the 80s in New York, I mean...
0: It was amazing. Crazy time and yet amazing time. Uh, Many, many of the young chefs, I mean, uh, in the kitchen at the Westbury Hotel in 83... I had a chef like Alfred Portal in the Garde Manger, Bill Yosses, which was the pastry chef at the White House for many years and a very close friend, amazing pastry chef. At the time, he was a cook in the Garde Manger. We had Thomas Keller in, uh, in, in the fish stations. Um, uh, I, and I had many other like David Chuck and, and, uh, Bob Bradley, Robert Bradley and, and where they were cooks from, uh, and I had, uh, Raft Scamadella, which is a partner at Tao today. Uh, we had Frank Crispo, a chef of New York. We had Dan, uh, Russo. Dan Russo was the chef at, uh, some, at the barbecue place, Midtown, uh, one of the, uh, um, big barbecue place and all that. So, you know, 20 30 years later they're still active those chefs but we all started together like almost 40 years
1: ago <laughs> uh who were some of the people like uh some of the clients that came in through the doors in those early 80s
0: yeah we had the uh, people like um andy world was always hanging out in the upper east side because that was all the gallery the art world was up here uh we had Richard Nixon, because Richard Nixon's daughter was living on 70 and Madison. The restaurant okay. was on 69 and Madison. Uh, we had Kissinger, we had Jackie Kennedy, we had um, all the people of the 80s, that socialites wow. of the 80s, Bloomingdales and uh, Mrs. Uh, uh, Loader and <laughs> you know the lady yeah. who made the ladies and gentlemen who made that world at the time. Uh, and even, even actors like Al Pacino, uh, somebody one time, uh, Al Pacino was there at the bar and, uh, I was, I was there and, 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 and somebody thought that we looked so much alike <laughs> at the time, at that <laughs> moment, I don't know, but we had a lot of actors, uh, uh, artists, singer, and, and, uh. And local locals, lot of business people, uh, upper east side. So that was quite social, and you know, kind of wealthy neighborhood as well. So
1: before we return to Chef Danielle, a word from our sponsor, Janus AC. In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects. From Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Janus AC's Kyoto Alu collection balances the past and present drawing its name and inspiration from Kyoto, Japan. Each piece resembles bamboo furniture, but instead is made from a lightweight powder-coated aluminum with hand-woven Janus fiber, a proprietary material designed to withstand the elements. The line, which includes rounded armchairs, sofas, ottomans, and side tables, features generous proportions and distinctive patterns that are elevated by luxuriously plush cushions. The eye-catching pieces come in a bright limestone and a dark lava and suit almost any mood for any outdoor space. My time, anyone? To create a unique outdoor living space that passes the test of time, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit janusac.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E dot com. And how long were you in, in New York before you went to uh, Le Cirque? How did that? Uh, well,
0: that? Uh, I went to Le Cirque in 84, so four years. Uh, no, uh, 86, 86. No, I went to Le Cirque in 86, so that was four years. Yeah, I was four years uh, in New York already when I decided to go to Le Cirque, three and a half years, four years.
1: And and for those who maybe you know don't remember the, the restaurant then and, and weren't in New York at the time, can you explain to people what Le Cirque was? At that of time. course
0: so arriving in new york uh we had to you know when you go to a city you don't know you have to learn what are the landmark of new york city's dining what are what are the history behind new york city dining who is the our competition who are we who are our benchmark and who do we want to be kind of compared to and and of course uh each restaurant have a reason, you know, we love the flowers at La Grenouille, but we love the clientele at Le Cirque, but we love the sort of the, the business side of uh, the four season. And we, uh, and, and each restaurant had this particular pitch that they were strong at. And, uh, and of course, uh, Le Cirque first, when I opened the Westbury, which was only ten blocks away, we had a lot of cooks coming from the And that was already getting serious. Machioni is there yeah. straight up because he was not too <laughs> happy about the cooks moving and all that. But life went on. And then after I opened the Plaza Tene and um I was I was the chef right basically if you opened the window of the kitchen of Le Cirque, you could pass something to the kitchen of the Plaza Athene <laughs> on the back. <laughs> and that was my kitchen there. So we will but we were budding buildings in the corners of the kitchen here. And um uh, and and uh while the Plaza Athene Hotel La Regence was not competition to Le Cirque, CIO knew that. The key, the food was better maybe there than in his restaurants. But still, mm-hmm. Le, the Le Cirque was more successful than the restaurant there. So, you know, sometimes it's not all about the food. <laughs> it was a lot about cereal as well. One time, there was this big event in New York where Paul Bocuse came. He was actually celebrating his 60th birthday at Le Cirque. Andy World was there and we organized that with the vodka also absolute because at the time a French guy, Michel Roux was importing absolute vodka to America and made this huge campaign with the artist Basquiat and, and Warhol and all that. Sure. The fa- now famous today. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, and so we throw a big party at the Régence at uh, the Plaza Athene. And that was also the birthday of Paul Bocuse. All the great chefs of France were there and they all, uh, had lunch. And I remember that lunch. I served them even the striped bass from the, from the Hudson River, striped bass. The, you know, I tried to really play local, but very, very classic, good and, and, you know, my style of cooking. Uh, but they all loved it. And, uh, at night, after they were all going to have dinner at Le Cirque and they, after that big lunch, they say, Oh, Danielle, you have to come and join us at Le Cirque for dinner. And actually, I was busy at the restaurant, so I could not, but I said, okay, I'll come later to have a drink with you at the end. So I went to join them there and I need, I didn't know Le Cirque too well because, uh, you know, by intimidation and also Having this problem with the cooks who came from Le Cirque to work for me, I didn't want to go to Le Cirque and get,
1: you know, crucified. <laughs> so right, I kind yeah. of avoided. <laughs> and and, um, and did you get to meet uh, Bocuse? Like, did you? Of get course, to-
0: because I knew Bo- I knew Paul Bocuse since the age of fourteen, and uh, okay. he has always followed me everywhere I go. And I knew him at the Westbury, and I knew him at the Plaza Athenae, and him and Roger Verger and. Gaston Lenot, the famous pastry chef, in 1980, 81, before I just I came just before I moved to New York, they were opening in Orlando the, the, the great chef of France there in Orlando at Disney World. And so uh. at the time there were no direct flight Paris Orlando, so they had to do a hub and they were always doing a hub in New York. Uh, so they will stay with us and then go to Orlando and then come back here and stay with us. So we'll see each other all the time. And so we had this birthday lunch, which I still have pictures of that. And, and, um, at night, we all meet at Le Cirque. And that day, Paul Bocuse told Sirio and say, uh, and, and other chef made comment that, uh, you know, uh, they, they all love Sirio, but they felt that the cooking could advance more. The cooking should be better in your place for the reputation you have and for the clientele you have and for who you are. And and Paul Bocuse said, and you should take Danielle next
1: door to run your restaurant. <laughs> and you said yes, I'm sure. And how did you say well, yes right away?
0: No, because that was not negotiated that way. So after that night, I heard that because nobody told me anything. But after that night, I heard that CEO later on wanted to talk to me. And he, exp- so we had a secret meeting here in the building, uh, coming from Park Avenue entrance that nobody see. And, and <laughs> we were sitting in a back room, which they used to call it the back, the backgammon room in the building. That was a backgammon room in the hotel. So we were sitting there and, uh, I had a, the first meeting with CEO. And Sierra is telling me that the chef wants to move on. He has been Alain Sayak has been there for six and a half years, and he wants to move on. And he wants to bring a new chef. And of course, Sierra had came with his family to have lunch for the for Mother's Day. He came to have also a, a, a dinner at the Regence, and he saw the quality of work I was doing. Even if his youngest son Maro, who was ten years old or twelve. Send me a two-page letter on a criticism about his dinner, uh, because that was kind of a school, uh, a school things. <laughs> that oh was gosh. I will never forget. No, he, he didn't send it to me. He sent it to the manager of the hotel. <laughs> oh <laughs> so my god! CEO was so embarrassed. <laughs> <by his skin. laughs> but anyway, so uh, first meeting with CEO, and uh, we discuss, and he would like me to come and join him eventually in the fall, and we are talking like it was like before the summer Um, and uh, so I uh, went through the negotiation and I felt that this was going to be the biggest challenge in my life because I'm taking a restaurant that is not an opening, neither it's a small countryside auberge that get busy once in a while, this is a runaway train that you you have to jump in and it's busy lunch and dinner and it never stops. and the pressure the the clientele is the highest clientele i mean you know the 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 clients are powerful the 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 business is very powerful the wine the wine program is amazing the service is amazing the uh the, the 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 product we can buy, it's amazing here. Yeah, the cooks, the team we have to work with. So it was really jumping into the, the big league. And mm-hmm. and 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 as a very young chef to prove that I can do it. Because there were How a lot old of you? Um, so I was 30, 30, yeah, 30, 31 uh, but to take this place that had been already in business for 17 years and have and and that's one thing. CEO had many accolades, but CIO never had four-star in the New York Times. And for him, that was his dream, uh, to be able to have four-star. <laughs> and after maybe six months that I was here, not even, then we got the four-stars in the New York Times. And there was a lot of transformation, and I kept transforming. And then five years later, the New York Times came back and gave us four-star again to from,
1: Le Pavillon, they're one of your, your new restaurants, opening in a very difficult time. Uh, can you explain a little bit about the history of this, the name and the concept behind this new restaurant? Coming in the early 80s in New York, Le Pavillon closed in the late
0: 60s, early 70s, and it was a restaurant that lasted about almost 30 years. And uh, from 1942, f- uh, I think, 43 to 1970. And, uh, it was still so vivid in the mind of people's customers, employees, suppliers, uh, and, and, and the history of New York City dining. When you know, when I came as a young man, I wanted to know what was the past made of and who was cooking where and what. And there were many characters in New York at the time that were young, but still were um had the chance to work at Le Pavillon, such as Pierre Franet, such as Jacques Pepin, and many other chefs around town that came from that generation of Le Pavillon and opened their own restaurants, and had worked there as a captain, as a waiter, as a cook, as a chef, as a, and met with me. And when I opened the Westbury Hotel at the Polo Lounge, I found that this year, or last year, when I opened the pavillon, I found some old menus and I see the name of the Metrody of the Westbury, which I totally forgot, and he worked there. And actually uh, he was there for more than a decade or two. Uh, William Mascarotti was the metrody at the pavillon and he was my metrody at the Polo Lounge for two and a half years. <laughs> and so totally soaked into these stories telling of Le Pavillon, that was the reference in French dining, and that was the foundation of all the other restaurants who opened in New York City. Mm. Um Having worked at Le Cirque, having admiration for what French cuisine was in New York City in all those years, uh, and uh, having respect for, you know, what the French had done in New York before, I felt that... um we had, we had 50 names to choose from, and one of them, at the end of all these meetings and these round tables and all that, I came up with Le Pavillon, and it felt like maybe it should be brought back, not for what it was, not for what it represent, but more for what it represented for New York, and also for just trying to, because today, French restaurant, are in much less quantity today you have you know equal equally good korean restaurant italian mm-hmm. japanese uh spanish and and all that i mean uh, coming mexican that are equally good as a french restaurant and i said and you know to to be able to uh bring back a piece of history of french history in new york that should maybe you know if it's available, why not use it again? And, and, <laughs> and, and, uh, so the reference.
1: Did you need permission to use the? Well, we to, made to sure we made name? a
0: survey that it yeah. was not hold by anyone. And, sure. and, and it's also a name. I mean, of course, there is pavilion, uh, yes, yeah. and there is a pavilion hotels and all that, but it's a, it's a common name. So it's, it's not a problem. So this one is Le Pavillon by Daniel Boulou. And I think. It's funny because I have customer even Mr Kissinger who came to le Pavillon the other day and I know Mr Kissinger for 40 years for having cooked for yeah. him. He, I was telling him you used to go to le Pavillon and he said yeah we used to go there uh you know at the time with uh, the Rockefeller and with the uh, uh and with uh, the Kennedys and uh all that. And um and so because of the history of Vanderbilt, uh, the the pavilion, this era of uh, New York that, uh, you know, right after the war and the name of the restaurant was named after the original French pavilion at the World Fair in 1939, I, I thought, you know, this is really New York. And yet this is very French.
1: And uh, when did you first... When did you set out to to open this restaurant? Was it not, it couldn't have been during the pandemic. I mean.
0: Yes, we we worked for five years. I mean, I've been working for five years on it and developing the design and all that. And uh, SL Green, Mark Holiday, the CEO has been fantastic. His team there, amazing partners to develop this restaurant with us. And uh, of course, because of the pandemic, we lost three months in our calendar. Uh, we were supposed to open in December of 2020 and we, and because of the loss of time and then New York City. Uh, so we were ready in March, April, we, because they couldn't put all the trades together when we started to really build the restaurant. By March, we knew that we could get ready to open anytime soon, but we wanted the city to reopen at 100%. We didn't want to open a new restaurant at 50%. So we made sure and put pressure on the mayor and say we want to open our restaurant mid May, we want the city to reopen mid May. And we decided on the date of May nineteenth and the mayor decided to reopen the city
1: on May nineteenth. <laughs> well we'll 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 give you the credit for that actually.
0: Yeah, and to and to Mark Holiday and to the fact that we we have to support a city, and, and we have to sometimes give it a kick. Uh, and, uh, and I think it was a good opportunity to be able to sh- show to New York that um, it's a good time to open a restaurant, even in the bad
1: time. And, and so much of your life, you know, when you're working in restaurants, there's such an entrepreneurial part to it. Um, there sort of has to be, um, you know, where restaurants can come and go. And you recently announced uh, Bolu Privé with, uh, I think, with Michael Schwoe. And can, can you tell me a little bit about what that is and what that's going to be like?
0: Uh, well, uh, this is going to be a private residence restaurant. So, you know, doing restaurant business, we know well what it is. I have also a catering company. And the catering company, we know very well how to deal with private home and dinners in private home. Uh, I have a catering company for 28 years now. Uh, so, uh, boule privé is sort of an, an extension between a restaurant and a private room, uh, private dining. And we have also a lot of private dining dining room in each of our restaurants. And so, it will be a um, it will be a limited à la carte, but convenient for people who live in the building and don't want to go out and entertain in their own building, of course. And also convenient that you want to have lunch, you want to have dinner, and uh you want to throw a little parties. And then we can always have the support of our catering companies and our restaurants when they want to have a meal by uh from Danielle in their home, if they want to have a meal from the Pavillon in their home or something like that.
1: Before my time with Chef comes to an end, I wanted to ask him a bit about his life today, how to cook for friends for a country weekend, and what makes a great burger. And uh, my next one, my last questions is uh, if you had to spend a weekend in the country or a week in the country with some family or some friends, and you only had one opportunity to go to the, to the store to pick up ingredients uh, to, to cook and eat for a week. Like, what would that menu for the week look like?
0: I think I will definitely buy eggs because eggs, I can cook them a different way every day, <laughs> lunch and dinner, mm-hmm. from little custard, from, from custard to, to uh, all kind of preparation. Cheese, a big piece of cheese because that I can cook that every day <laughs> in one way or another.
1: With the omelet if you need Absolutely.
0: to? Absolutely. And I will buy a big roast that can also be uh transformed uh into many different recipes from burgers to to meatballs to uh to to you know uh pot pie to whatever i mean of course uh it could be pork it could be beef it could be a uh, uh, lamb for that uh but a lot of vegetable a lot of vegetable uh and uh, why? Because I can live on vegetable, uh, if I can, uh, you know, I can make all kind of meals with vegetables and cured meats and cured fish. And of course, fish, I like, I like cured fish. I have my own smoked salmon, uh, mm-hmm. branded, which is a recipe from Denmark when I used to live in Denmark. And, okay. uh, it's done by a company called Catsmo and uh, distributed by Solex. And you can have that in many of the Whole food all over the East Coast, uh, but uh, also online at danielboulou.com. And so smoked salmon will be always in my refrigerator in small package, just ready to go. If you had to b- buy one bottle of wine for the... Burgundy and Rhone, mostly it's Burgundy and Rhone for me, and white and red, both either wine, Burgundy and Rhone.
1: Why do you like Burgundy? If you have to pick, you know, for that one bottle choice, why Burgundy?
0: I was born near Burgundy and (laughs) I was born near Rhone as well because Lyon is the anchor city between north in the north, Beaujolais and Burgundy. And in the south, Côte-Rotie, Hermitage, and Côte-du-Rhône, and the Rhône, Chateauneuf. So basically, as a true Lyonnais, you don't even know where is Bordeaux? You don't even know what what is Bordeaux. <laughs> you only know Burgundy and Rhone. Uh, and,
1: and you know, going back to your roots, if if someone visits Le Pavillon or any or or Danielle or or anything like that, do you think that there's there's a little part of you from your youth and as you know on the farm that you can you can recognize? Well. You know, it's hard to uh, find sometimes
0: it's hard to find, but you can find that at Barboulou because it's a little bit more modest and it's Mm -hmm. uh, more classic. Also, it's a it's it's a wine bar bistro from based on the Lyonnais idea of the wine list is made with Rhone and Burgundy for the most part and uh, at Bar and and we have charcuterie and we have Boudin Blanc and Boudin Noir and. Uh we do cocovin, we do all kind of meals that you could find on your table at home in Lyon. Um we do a cassoulet right now, which is fantastic in the winter. Uh and then um of course at Daniel, uh there's a gougere. We do like sometime we do Gougère for a special event. So uh we uh, we do Madeleine, that is something that I grew up with. Uh, the Madeleine, uh, the little cookies. So yeah. there is here and there sometimes, uh, things that are reminiscent of maybe my youth or, 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 uh, a specialty that we, we do. And at the champ, at, at the, at the pavilion, again, maybe because great memories are often sweet. And, uh, at the pavillon, we do the petit chou à la crème. Because I remember as a kid to go down to the bakery and buy the chou à la crème. where, you know, you dig your teeth in, and all that cream goes into your mouth. When you, and so the petit chou à la crème is you pop it in, and plop, it explodes with the cream inside. Uh, so that's a little
1: also. So that's on the menu at Le Pavillon. Amazing.
0: Well, it come it come for free at the end of the meal.
1: So when you you spend a few weeks in France and you come back to New York, now that you you're a, a true. Died in the wool in New Yorker after forty years. When you come back to New York, what is the first thing you like to do that you feel like is something that is part of your your life in new york?
0: well when when I come from France, I'm not so deprived, but uh, still, I mean, I want to of course visit my restaurant and I think what I like to do the the most is to also go to the country. And cook for the family uh, routine of Sunday Sunday uh Sunday brunch or 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 Sunday dinner, but uh and and to make myself uh you know uh, maybe a, a nice fish because when I go to France to my family and I cook there and I stay with them, I don't really cook as well, I cook seafood because I go to the market and buy seafood uh a lot. But uh Coming back to New York is, um, of course, um, going back to the food we make here. This is so different than what I eat in Lyon and in my family. But when I come back from Asia, I'm craving for American food. And if I come back from Singapore or China or, or Japan and all that, then I'm craving for a good burger. I'm craving a good steak. I'm coming back from France. I don't have that craving the same way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what is a good burger to Daniel Balloude?
0: Well, I am, uh, I would say officially the one who launched the gourmet burger by launching DB burger 20 years ago and selling it at 30 bucks a burger or 28 eight dollar a burger at the time with foie gras black truffle and braised short ribs inside and the db burger was a work of art and uh the db burger was um a chef burger uh it was engineered by a chef and which had the element of a tornado rossini in a way but in a burger it was a blend of what the best French dishes is with the beef tourneau with the foie gras slice on top and the truffle sauce, and what the best American burger is and the two together.
1: But when you fly home, when you fly home from maybe a, a week in Japan, a couple of weeks in Asia, I crave the, the DB burger,
0: but I Are crave also the Frenchie we do at the Babulu, or at DBGB. We used to do the Yankee, the Piggy, the Frenchie and all those burgers. I crave them because to me, uh, we make our own buns. We, you know, we grind our own meat. We, we select. So we do so many things that, uh, it's like the jambon beurre where we make the ham, the bread. The, you know, we it's it's a lot of those things that I crave uh, because uh, you know uh, the the jambon beurre at épicerie boulou is one of the best jambon beurre in New York. And I uh, hope to meet many of your listeners here in New York. Yes, at
1: yes i I, I well, absolutely. And I'm gonna I'm gonna run down there as Le well. pavillon. And I would say that
0: in New York City, people sometimes worry about making reservations. I would say that in many restaurants, they all have bars and they all have lounge. And like at Le Pavillon, or at, at Daniel, or at Bar Bouloud or at Boulud and the best entry to a restaurant is to go to the bar and either have your dinner there or wait for your tables, have a drinks, and uh, look forward to seeing many of you.
1: Thank you to Chef Daniel Boulud and his entire team for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, Please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more and sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.